crazy? What are you doing? Hey! Hey! You're stealing my space! George, wait, you don't know who this guy is? People kill for a parking space in this city. No, 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 he's not getting away no, with this. George! Hey, what are you doing? I think I'm parking my car. You can't do that. You can't just sneak in from the back like that. I'm not sneaking. I didn't even know you were parking. You were just sitting there three spaces up. Well, if you didn't think I was parking, why did you put it in head first? Well, that's the way I park! <laughs> anyway, you didn't start backing in until I pulled in. I was in the middle of a conversation. Hey, buddy, what can I tell you? Right, the point is, I was here first. I was closer to this space than you were. But I'm backing in. You can't put it in head first. I can if I have room! <laughs> Are you going to move the car? No, I'm not going to move the car. Jerk. Oh, you're not? Where is this going? Come on, we'll put it in the garage. I am not putting it in the garage. It's my space. What are you going to do? You're just going to leave it here like this? Oh, I'm going upstairs. Uh, are you coming back then? Yeah, i got to tell Jerry we're here. i got to go to the bathroom. Just make sure he reserves the good chair for me. What were you going to tell him about the clanking noise in the, in the car? Me? No, 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 you. You're going to tell him. No, I'm not going to tell him. Come on, you're good at this. What am I going to say? I don't know, I don't know. You'll think of something. Just just it for him, Jerry. We all laugh, but we've been in the same situation in the past week probably, haven't we? Road rage, super crazy. I'm going to tell a story about road rage in a second. Before that, good morning, everyone. My name is Luke. I serve here with the Young Adult Ministry. Super excited to share with you this morning. If you are a young adult in this room and you've never heard about or been to our ministry house group, please come and talk to me at some point. After the service, I'll be up front here to talk to you. Also, uh, or if you need to get out quickly, my email is luke at vcnw.org. So shoot me an email. I'd love to give you information about that. But we're going to continue on in this series that Van introduced last week. It's called Keep Your Love On. Keep Your Love On. And the basic premise of this is that love is not... just an emotion. It's not even just an action, but really love is a continuous choice that we have to continually choose to not only love people with our actions, but love people in our mind too. How many of us have ever done something that was perceived as love while in here we were like, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. I've done it before. We have to keep our love on, and we do that by making two fundamental, fundamental commitments. First one is that I don't get to control anyone except for myself. I don't get to control anyone except for myself. And that sounds easy enough, but there are situations where I'm talking with someone, I'm in relationship with someone, and I'm like, if you make that decision, you are going to wreck your life. So I'm going to do whatever it takes to get you to not do that and to do this, be it fear or intimidation or even manipulation. And I think the basic, the major point I'm getting at with that we cannot control anyone, we have to commit to not control anyone but ourselves, is that even if we get someone to make the right decision, with fear, control, or manipulation, it cannot, that, is, that cannot be called love. And that's where it gets tough. And that's where we got to stick by 
our values. Second major commitment we have to make is that preserving connection with the people that I'm in a relationship with is my most important duty in loving them, even more so than keeping them safe and what my idea of safe is or other things. And so I want to start off by telling you a story, probably the craziest road rage incident I've ever experienced. Luckily, I was a third party in this one. I was not involved in any way. I was just minding my own business. But to set the stage for you, my grandfather's name is Cliff Niehaus. He's lived in, as he refers to it, Beavis, which is this area, his whole life. And he grew up a farmer. Uh, He was a farmer for uh, all the years that he was at home, and then he got a job at P&G, worked there until he retired. Upon retiring, he decided to start his own business. He started a corn stand. It was over, maybe some of you have been there before. It was over on Springdale and Brem Road, and they would sell corn and tomatoes and watermelon and other fruits and vegetables. And I worked there from age nine until 23 every single summer. And so learned a lot about how to interact with people and sales and stuff there. Probably ate like 200 peaches over (laughs) that I did not pay for over that time period. But one day, my grandfather and I, I think I was probably 21, we were at the corn stand and we had a big trailer full of gravel Because if you've ever had a gravel driveway before, you know that a lot of times divots and holes will be there that you have to fill in with other gravel continually. And so I'm sitting there with a steel rake, pushing gravel off a trailer, smoothing out these holes. Super interesting work. And sunny day, probably like 80 degrees. I'm in a shorts and t-shirt. My grandfather's next to me. And it wasn't the most interesting work, but I enjoyed it because I was with him. All of a sudden... We looked to our left. To our left, about 30 feet, like kind of like down a little hill, down a slope, is a road. It's Brem Road. And these two cars are screeching to a stop right in front of us. There's one white car and then a big black SUV. Out of the white car jumps these three guys that looked like they had just graduated high school. Maybe we're still in high school. Out of the black SUV jumps a middle-aged guy. And they... Oh, they fling their doors open, jump out of their cars, and run up to each other and are all in each other's faces. And so I look over, and I'm witnessing this, and uh, part of me, the part of me that was still, because you know, you're never like one age. You're like both still young and older than you should be at the same time. And so like the 19 or 18-year-old part of me is like, sweet, I love UFC. I like watching people fight. This is going to be awesome. And then the uh, other part of me that knows that, okay, I want to be a good Christian. I shouldn't enjoy people beating each other's faces in. Is like, okay, what am I going to do? How am I going to stop this if it gets to blows? And so anyways, with all that in my mind, I'm watching these four in in each other's faces screaming and yelling and cussing. And uh, they did not fight. So I suppose it was both, I was both relieved and slightly disappointed all in one. Um... And they went back to their cars and were about to drive away. Again, this is from road rage. Like they were yelling about something. And so I thought it was over. That's what I thought. But really, the guy who jumped in the black SUV, he 
drove the other way, and then I guess he decided that he was not, he was like, I'm not done with them. And so he does a U-turn, parks his car again, right in front of, right in the road, right in front of me, and gets out of the driver's seat, don't know where he got it from, but had a lead pipe in his hand. And he started running towards the white car as fast as he could. Then, get this, out of the passenger seat hops one of the young guys, and he's got a gun in his hand. And he cocks it. Yeah, this is crazy road rage. And so he, he uh, takes the gun out. The guy with the lead pipe sees it. He aims it right at him. And the dude keeps running towards the car. <laughs> Can you believe that? <laughs> he keeps running with this lead pipe. And so I hear the gun go off. The young guy, he decided to shoot it up in the air to try to scare him. But this dude was like in a craze. And he kept on going and started bashing in the car with the lead pipe, hitting the front hood, hitting the windshield. The gun goes off two more times, and finally the dude decides, okay, I think dying over road rage is not the best plan. I'm going to go back to my SUV. So he runs back. The three guys jump back in their white car. They pull away. And me and my grandpa are left standing there like, what did we just witness? crazy. Totally true story, I promise you. And here's the point I want to make from it. Last week, Van introduced the concept of powerful and powerless people. And I want to suggest to all of you that the four guys that were involved in that interaction, they all four were powerless people. And the important distinction here is that powerful does not mean dominant. Powerful does not even mean that I always get my way. That's not what we mean when we say that we should all be powerful people. Remember, one of the, if you were here last week, one of the main points is that if we want to keep our love on, the first thing we have to do is stop being powerless people and start being powerful people. And so let's review quickly what the definition of a powerful and a powerless person is. Let's start with a powerful person. Powerful people say, I'm willing to be responsible for my life and the choices I make. That's a powerful person. A powerless person, on the other hand, says, I'm unwilling to take responsibility for my life, and ultimately, I don't have a choice. That I'm a victim of other people, I'm a victim of circumstances, I don't have choices that I can make. I can't take responsibility for my life and my relationships. And so one question that I think is worth addressing is, is it okay for Christians to call themselves powerful people? You know, if you grew up with a understanding like me, you might have grown up thinking that the more that I self-deprecate myself in my speech, the more that I talk down about me, I'm a lousy, pathetic sinner. The more I do that, the more I honor God and exalt God. I mean, he said, humble yourselves so that you may be exalted, right? So the more that I talk badly about myself, the more I honor him. That was an understanding that I grew up with. And so with that in my mind, I can see why it's okay, why I want to be a powerful person, but am I being prideful when I continually call myself a powerful person? Or have any of you, have any of you ever known someone who, whenever they received a compliment, Maybe they gave a teaching or a message and someone went up to them and said, hey, great job, that was a great teaching or that was a great message or that was a great whatever. 
and the person responds with, oh, don't thank me or don't, don't honor me. It was all God. It wasn't me at all. It was totally God. That can sound like pious, right? That can sound good, but it also kind of feels strange, especially when someone like obsessively will not receive compliments and always just direct it to God. And so I want to I want to show all of you, or I want to explain to all of you a metaphor that I heard that really brought this into clarity for me. So uh, Nathaniel, one of the young adult staff here, can you grab that painting and bring it up on stage, please? A couple weeks ago, an amazingly talented artist named Leah Level painted that in a half hour. You can bring it up with the stand, Nathaniel. Yep, thanks. (laughs) Unless you want to stand up here and hold it the whole time. Uh, Leah Level, she painted that in a half hour during a worship set. Is that incredible? We, actually, we got it up there too. Um, thanks, Nathaniel. So, yeah, obviously a beautiful painting. I got a question for everyone. If I were to look at this painting and be like, man, there are so many imperfections on this painting. That's blurry there, and that's not straight there, and the distance between here and here is not the same as the distance between here and here. Man, there's so many flaws here. This is an ugly painting. It could have been way better. Am I honoring the artist when I talk poorly about the painting? No, right? So the next question is, who is painting us? Did we paint us? Did we create? Did I create myself? God is the painter. And while it's definitely a good thing to walk in humility, talking poorly about myself, calling myself a lousy, filthy sinner, is not honoring him. In fact, true humility, I love this is a C.S. Lewis quote, True humility is thinking no better of myself than I actually am, and certainly no less. That's true humility. Actually, it's a false humility when I'm constantly putting myself down in order to supposedly supposedly honor God. Okay, Nathaniel, come grab this. Thanks, Nathaniel. Let's clap for for Nathaniel. You know, you guys want to know something Van taught me? Whenever you give someone a compliment, so say, I was, say it was someone who gave like a message, and I were to go up to them and say, hey, great message. You were really brilliant and revelatory. What Van taught me is if they respond with, oh, no, it wasn't me, it was all God, Van taught me to say, well, it wasn't that good. <laughs> so I've used that a couple times, and they're like, whoa, whoa. Okay. It is okay to call to want to be and to call ourselves powerful. It's okay to talk about ourselves in the way that God views us. God thinks we are amazing. God views us and calls us his masterpiece. We are beloved. We are righteous. We are sons and daughters. We are no longer slaves but heirs. That's how God views us. So I'm not going to allow myself to feel guilty or let someone shame me into feeling prideful 
because I agree with what God thinks about me. Okay? And so, um, one last note on being powerful people. When we say powerful, I don't mean that I can pray for a lot of people and see them get healed. I don't mean that I have amazing public speaking skills or teaching skills. I don't mean that I'm a great pastor. I don't mean that I can counsel people and listen well and help them find problems. Power is fully dependent upon our love. And love is the basis for us being powerful people. The more loving we are, the more we keep our love on, the more powerful we become. That is what we mean when we say powerful people. And so I want to read a verse now that talks about what it looks like to be powerful and what it doesn't look like, or what it looks like to be powerless. So let's read 1 John 4, verses 18 and 19. If you have a Bible and you want to read along, I'll give you a second to go there. John was called the beloved apostle, the one whom Jesus loved. And you know what? He wasn't afraid to write that in the scriptures, calling himself the one whom Jesus loved. So verse 18 in 1 John 4 says this, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. I want to quote a Danny Silk, the author of the book Keep Your Love On. I love this quote right here from this section. Fear and love have opposite agendas and opposite strategies for achieving them. They cannot coexist in a person, relationship, or culture. I touched on this earlier, but if we are inciting fear in someone for any reason, we cannot call that love. Even if us inciting fear in them causes them to make a good decision, we are not loving them because we're not teaching them how to make good decisions. We're coercing them into doing what we think is best for them. Love fully empower, love shows people what the consequences of decisions are, but gives them the freedom to choose. That's what love is. Fear cannot coexist with it. If you ever heard of Putty Putman, he is the leader of the School of Kingdom Ministry. And I love a phrase that he uses all the time. He says that we can never use the devil's means to achieve kingdom ends. Control, intimidation, fear, manipulation, those do not come from God. Those come from him. And so even if it looks, even if, I mean, I've been tempted to do do this so many times in pastoring people and counseling people and seeing that they are making a series of bad decisions and thinking, how can I stop them from doing that? I've been tempted to control, manipulate, and intimidate. And in fact, I've done that before. But what I'm learning is that we have to see people not in moments, but in a process. Same thing with our relationships too. And so if I'm using the devil's end means to try to achieve kingdom ends, eventually I'm going to be building up into that relationship, not the kingdom of heaven, but the other kingdom. Cannot do that. And so I want to, I want to show, I want to do like a love to fear comparison now. 
I want to show you 10 items where the first item on the left, there's going to be a graphic up there, is what love thinks, says, or does, and the other is fear. So, first one here is that love says, I am loved, whereas fear thinks, I need to earn love. Have you ever been someone who, when you're around people, you're constantly thinking about, I wonder if they love me or not. I wonder if they like me. I wonder if they accept me. Have you ever been around people for an extended period of time and obsessed over that question? Do they accept me? Do they like me? Do they love me? If you have, and I've been there before, that means that what you need more than anything else is to know that God loves you. And from that identity will come all human love, both given and received. The verse said, we love because he first loved us. And so what that means is the first thing that we have to understand and recognize is that we are beloved of God. And when we really believe and understand that, we will both be able to give love and receive love in the way that God gives and receives love. First and most important thing. Second, Love says, I have more than enough, whereas fear says, I don't have enough. If you were around a couple years ago when we did the Freedom Project, the first is called a spirit of abundance. The second is called a spirit of scarcity. If I am constantly living in the fear of, oh, I don't have enough time, I don't have enough energy, I don't have enough money to do what God is calling me to do, then I am living out of fear. To let it out of love, on the other hand, and this is kind of like loving God and loving myself, you have to love yourself. You can't just love God and other people. You have to love yourself too. If I, when I'm living out of that place, that's when I'm like, you know what? I probably couldn't do the things that God wants me to do out of my own time, energy, and money, but I trust that he's going to provide for me because I'm beloved of God. He loves me. He cares about me. So I can trust in him. Third thing, love understands that my performance flows from my identity, whereas fear thinks my performance creates my identity. It's kind of like my, how I behave, if I'm living out of fear, I'm constantly afraid that my behavior is going to cause God to be disappointed in me and no longer love me. Whereas on the other hand, I understand that Jesus bought me this identity. I can trust in that and I can rest in that. And I don't need to prove myself or earn God's love. Next thing, love sees possibilities whereas fear sees problems. You know, we live in a crazy and a broken world, and there are going to be unexpected events that happen in our lives. In fact, I've heard some people call these critical incidents. And what's really awesome about a critical incident is that when it happens, we get actually get the opportunity when something goes awry, when something unexpected happens, when someone says something to us that insults us, 
when something tragic happens, whatever it might be, something unexpected, when that happens, we get the opportunity to respond in such a way that we are exemplifying the values of Jesus and the kingdom and making a declaration to ourselves and to the people around us that he is the one who we follow and we trust and who we love. We have that opportunity. But if I'm so focused on the problem, if I'm so afraid of what the problem is going to do to me, how it's going to affect my life, then I'm never going to realize that opportunity. And I'm going to be a subject to my problems, constantly being blown back and forth whenever anything goes wrong. Love sees possibilities and opportunities. Fear focuses on the problem. Next one. Love responds, whereas fear reacts. Yeah. Anyone ever reacted poorly before? (laughs) I have many times. What happens is somebody else does or says something that makes me no longer okay on the inside. And because I'm not okay now, I need to reclaim my sense of feeling okay. And the way I'm going to do that is by making you not okay. You know, self-control is a really amazing fruit of the Spirit, but it gets misunderstood. People view self-control as action control. Like, self-control is I'm going to discipline myself so that I can control my actions and only do the actions I want and stop doing the actions I don't want to do. That's not what self-control is, biblically, anyway. Self-control is being able, to, being able to maintain my identity as a son of God, whose peace is dependent upon nothing but God, whose joy is dependent upon nothing but God, to maintain and preserve that even when problems, stress, tra- and uh, tragic things, everything else is coming on me from the outside. It's being able to maintain that. That's self-control. And when we can maintain that, when we can maintain that self-control, we will never react out of fear or insecurity because what is in here is security, courage, and love. It's really an amazing thing. And so as you are learning, as as we are learning to keep our love on, one way that we'll see that we are growing in that is that we will start to react less and respond more. And now respond, responding, I want to clarify this, responding isn't like being a doormat and being walked all over. Responding is still confronting things that shouldn't have been said or shouldn't have been done or things that made us feel, things that hurt our feelings or made us feel pain or whatever it might be. That's responding. We still confront, but it's not coming out of insecurity or fear. We are, we are confronting the incident because we want to preserve the connection with the person, whoever it may be. Next one. Love experiences emotions, whereas fear loses self to emotions. Again, this has to do with self-control. And so when we live in love, it doesn't mean that we don't feel pain or sadness or even anger doesn't mean we don't feel those things. It just means that we don't allow those things to become what's going on in here. That Jesus stays central to who we are and the peace and the love that we have in him stays central. Self-control. Next one. 
Love understands that I'm worthy because I'm loved, whereas fear thinks I'm loved if I prove myself worthy. You do not have to do anything to prove yourself worthy to God. He loves you already. And it's not your actions, it's not my actions, that shows God that I'm worthy enough to be loved by him. It's God who loves me and builds me up so much so that I act in such a way that is worthy of him. Next one, love dwells in rest and peace, fear and tension and anxiety. Next one, love takes responsibility for self. Fear projects responsibility for self. Oh man. When someone says something that offends me, you know the first thing I want to do is tell three other people besides the person that offended me. Tell my three closest friends, can you believe what this person said? They said this, 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 and this. And then they take up a cause for me. Oh yeah, they're such a jerk. Let's go get them. <laughs> you know? That is, uh, we're going to get into, I'm gonna, we're going to get into that to close up in a second, but that is not a healthy way to communicate. Next one. Love is how Jesus lives and thinks, whereas fear is how Satan lives and thinks. All of the other things on the right side, that is who Satan is. He doesn't just try to instill that in us. That is who he is. And out of his identity, he tries to project that onto us, just like I'm tempted to project my negativity onto other people when I'm feeling it whereas Jesus was totally on the other side. And so as we're thinking about this difference between acting in fear and acting in love, I want to close with revisiting an illustration that Van introduced last week. And this, I'm just going to call it the bad guy, victim, rescuer, triangulation scenario. So if we get that illustration up, that would be great. The purpose of this illustration is to illustrate is to show negative um, forms of conflict resolution and communication. And specifically, it shows the different personas that we'll play as we are communicating in an unhealthy way. And the reason we want to know these things is that when we become aware of how, when I become aware of how I'm communicating poorly, or how I am taking on a persona that I shouldn't be, then I can more easily resist it when it happens in the moment. And so how this situation of triangulation usually occurs is that there's a bad guy who uses intimidation, fear, control, manipulation. Maybe they simply just make an insult. They do something that makes a victim no longer okay in here. And once the victim experiences that those negative emotions and is hurt by the bad guy in some way, what the victim should do is confront the bad guy right there and tell the bad guy, hey, it made me feel this way when you said that. And I know that you probably have a side to the story. And so I want to hear your side of the story so we can work this out. That's what should happen. But what oftentimes happens, as I said earlier, is that the victim will actually go to another person 
tell them what the bad guy did from their side of the story and get the rescuer get the rescuer to take up an emotional cause for them and confront their bad guy for them. And what happens here is when the victim allows the bad guy to hurt them in some way or to offend them in some way and it goes unconfronted, what the victim is actually doing is perpetuating the identity and mentality of the bad guy to them by saying, hey, when you do this, this, and this, I will not confront you about it. And so you will get your way with me when you'd use this tactic, perpetuating the identity of the bad guy. Then when the victim goes to the rescuer and the rescuer confronts the bad guy for the victim, the rescuer is perpetuating the mentality of the victim saying, you are not able to confront your bad guys yourself. So you need to come to me so that I can do it. And now the victim believes I can never confront the people who offend or hurt me. And that's perpetuated and reinforced. Then when the rescuer gets in the middle of the bad guy and the victim's issue and is there until either something gets resolved or the victim feels better, then the rescuer starts to believe, huh, I can solve these these people's problems for them out of love for them. And so what happens is that the victim never learns how to no longer be a victim and how to confront the bad guy. The bad guy never learns that it's not okay to use the tactics that he or she has been using. And the rescuer thinks that they're a saint. And so you have this triangulation, this cycle that continues and continues and continues. And it actually draws other people in. Because bad guys, the longer they're a bad guy, the more victims they're looking for. The victim, the the more they internalize that identity, the more people they start to see and view as bad guys. And rescuers, this is where I'm a rescuer a lot of times, rescuers always need more victims they can stand up for to make themselves feel good about themselves. It's really a, it's obviously a strategy from hell is this, <laughs> so we can all see. And so here's what we need to do. If, first off, if you, if I've ever been a bad guy, or if any of us in here have ever been a bad guy before, we should stop being a bad guy. We should stop using fear, control, intimidation, manipulation, insults, etc., to get our way. We do not have to resort to those things to get our way. Even more importantly, when we are a victim or we perceive that we are a victim of a bad guy, we might feel tempted to go and talk to five other people about it, which another word for that is gossip. We might be tempted to do that, but we have to make the choice to step into our identity as a courageous son or daughter of God. You know, he said in his word that we have received a spirit not of fear, but of power and love, and self-discipline, a spirit of power. We are to be powerful. We have to make the choice to confront that person, and we don't, confrontation, that word has connotations to it like fighting, you know, or violence, but really confrontation simply is, hey, when you said or did this, I felt this way. What's your side of the story? Let's work this out. That's confrontation. 
The victim has to learn to do that with their bad guy. Third thing, when your friend or spouse or family member comes to you and says, hey, guess what this person did, blah, 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 and starts complaining about another person, what we have to do is be loving, listen, offer advice, but whenever someone comes to me and tells me about how someone else offended them, I never leave that interaction without telling them, okay, that sounds like a tough situation, you sound hurt, you should talk to the person. Never will I ever listen to somebody go on and complain about a way another person offended them without telling them you need to talk to that person about it. And if you don't talk to that person about it, then I don't want to talk to you about it anymore because I'm not going to be your rescuer because you are more than that. You have the identity of a son or daughter. You do not have to live in fear of bad guys. You can confront them yourselves. I want to say one more thing about this kind of as a disclaimer because we're using language like victim and bad guy and rescuer and we're talking about how all three of those are powerless positions and they're not things that we should desire or want. If you have ever been a victim of any kind of abuse, what we are not saying is that you deserved it or it was your fault or that you brought it on. What we're, and I do, while I do believe that Victims learning how to not think like a victim as defined by powerless people and the way we've been talking about it. Well, I think learning how to not think like that is a really good thing. It does not not at all cancel out any pain or abuse that anyone has experienced. So I want to say that so that anyone in here has been a victim before, which statistics will tell us that a third of us have, that... It was, we are not putting anything on you. Okay. So as we're learning to be powerful people, we have to decide not to control people. We have to decide not to use fear, but to live in love. We cannot be bad guys. We cannot be victims and we cannot be rescuers. And can you imagine what would happen in our families if every single member stopped playing one of these three roles? There'd be no more gossip there'd be no more fear or intimidation or control that is used. And if it did get used, it would get resolved and taken care of right there. It'd be a really an amazing thing. So that's what we're working towards. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back out at this point. In a second, Van is gonna come up and take us into the next part of the service. For all of us, let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you created us to be powerful. We thank you that you created us to be in loving connection with you and with everyone around us. We thank you that you've given us all of the tools to live and think according to the way that you live and you think. And we ask that you just release grace to all of us in Jesus' name to let us do that. So we love you, Lord. Amen.